Nicodemus thought that he knew all about God. He was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was a group of 71 of the most powerful religious and political leaders in Israel during the time of Jesus. His religious training had been in the school of the Pharisees. In other words, he was a great theological thinker of the day. On top of this, he is called a ruler of the Pharisees, which tells us that he was one of the top dogs. But when a 30-year-old carpenter's son from Nazareth literally burst on the scene by clearing the temple of all the traders that were there and doing things like turning water into wine and other miraculous things, Nicodemus decides that he must investigate for himself who this young leader truly is. The only problem is that if he meets him in public in broad daylight, the common people might think that the Sanhedrin approved of Jesus. So instead, he has a secret meeting with him under the cover of darkness. Now, Nicodemus had been a teacher all of his adult life, and that was mainly what the Pharisees did. They taught the people about who God was and what he expected from mankind. But the teacher was about to become the student. Perhaps as you're listening today, uh, you've learned many things over the course of your life about humans and um, how we came into existence, everything around us, the big questions of life. You have certain beliefs about the meaning of life and what happens when you die. But just like Nicodemus, you're curious and maybe a little confused about this Jesus. Who was he? What was his mission? And why was his teaching about God so revolutionary and shocking to those who were supposed to know the most about God during his time? Have you ever been in an office of a professor or a teacher at a school perhaps that you were attending? One of the things that you might have noticed on their walls was a plaque or perhaps a framed diploma that showed that they had a degree. This piece of paper indicated that they had attended graduate school, or maybe they had done some Ph.D. work. Because they had graduated from a particular university with a degree in a specialized field, it gave them credibility to answer the questions that you might have about that area that you are studying. As Jesus speaks to Nicodemus here, first and foremost, he lays a foundation for his credibility. He says in the first verse here, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If, you have told, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so incredibly here, Jesus is claiming that he came down from heaven. That's why he's able to give an accurate depiction of who God is. This gave him the credibility that he needed. And this morning I want to share for you four things that Jesus taught Nicodemus about God in their clandestine conversation here. First, he taught him that he is a loving God. John 3.16 is probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible. That's why we see it at sporting events held up in end zones. That's why most Sunday school classes include it as one of the top memory verses for children. Jesus starts out here in this verse by saying, For God so loved the world. Now, loving might not be the first attribute that comes to your mind when you think about God. I know for me, in a phase of my life, uh, other words like angry, vengeful, distant, unapproachable, 
disappointed, describe my thoughts about him. To me, he felt more like one of the malevolent gods of the Romans or the Germanic gods. Consider for a moment how Thor, the god of thunder, is depicted in the Avenger movies. Sure, he looks strong, good-looking, usually wins his battles. But he's also pretty arrogant, uncaring, and frankly, a bit unstable. But this is not the God that Jesus describes here. I think my favorite passage about the love of God the Father that's in the Bible is a story that Jesus told of the lost son. A wealthy father gives one of his sons a portion of his inheritance, and this son leaves and spends it all on unrighteous living, prostitutes, partying. And when the money runs out, the son finds himself feeding pigs. In fact, he's so hungry that he longs to eat the food that the pigs are eating. And it dawns on him that the servants back in his father's home have it better off than he has it. And so he hatches this plan to go back on his knees to his father, begging that uh, his father make him one of his servants. And as he's walking up the driveway, his father sees him a long way off and drops everything, runs down to embrace him. Then he throws him a big feast and accepts him back into the family. As I think about that, I think about what he didn't do. He didn't run down there and say something along the lines of, where have you been and what about all that money I gave you? Have you been running from God, fearing that if you got back to him, he'd be angry, that he would punish you? Have you wasted all the blessings that God has given you? If so, you're not alone. I ran for God, from God in my early adulthood to the point where I spent four years in prison for an armed robbery. Talk about ending up in a pig pen. But God continued to reach out to me. He had not given up on his lost son. Second, he teaches Nicodemus here that God is a giving God. Look around the world today and you'll see that it's in pretty tough shape. Rape, murder, genocide, emotional suffering, just to name a few, are running rampant, and I don't see any end in sight to all of those problems. But who or what is going to save us from all of this? The government? The education system? The environmentalists? Jesus goes on here to tell Nicodemus that God's loved the world so much that he gave his only son. In other words, God did not just leave us in our mess. Now, God could have sent many different things to try to clean up this mess. For instance, he could have sent an alien race that was more socially evolved than ours to come down and teach us that we all just need to get along. This is the message of Star Trek. In fact, I was a Star Trek Trekkie, you know, for years when I was younger. And in the movie First Contact, the emotional Vulcans arrive on Earth and show mankind that war is just illogical. But our prom problem is not an intellectual one. If it were, don't you think all the great thinkers of the world would have solved it by now? No, our problem is spiritual. And that is why God sent a spiritual solution, or a heavenly solution, if you prefer. The Heavenly Father sent His Heavenly Son, the God-Man, who was named Jesus. The third thing we see here this morning is that he is a merciful God. In the next phrase of the conversation here, we see that Nicodemus and Jesus are talking about the reason that Jesus was sent to earth from heaven. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I said earlier that the humans uh, have a spiritual problem. 
Some call it evil or selfishness or a darkened heart. The Bible calls it sin. And simply put, sin is not living up to the moral standard that God has given us. One way that we know this standard is through our conscience. Let's take, for instance, the area of theft. We all agree that this is a particular moral standard because when it happens to us, we are outraged. In our culture today, there's a thing called relativism where people say, well, not everything that applies to you applies to me. But think about if you got robbed. Think about if someone stole your car. How would you feel? You'd want justice. You'd want reparations. You'd be outraged. This is seen in every single culture from the beginning of history until today. These sins have separated mankind from God, and God, being the perfect judge that he is, demands a price for these sins. Somebody has to pay. Punishment has to be allocated, because God is not only righteous, but he is also just. But then God did something amazing, something unexpected. He decided that he was going to take the punishment upon himself. Imagine that you were convicted of a crime and you were standing in front of the judge. The evidence was irrefutable. They had the videotape. They had testimonies from eyewitnesses. In fact, you even signed your own confession. And even your lawyer declares to you that the case is unwinnable. But just when the judge is about to pronounce the sentence, an innocent friend stands up in the courtroom. He says, Your Honor, if you will allow it, I would like to take the place of my friend. This is just what Jesus did for you. God, in his mercy, laid the punishment for mankind on his son, Jesus. And because of his death on the cross, you don't have to be thrown out of the presence of God into hell forever. In fact, you will get to spend eternity in the paradise of God, which is called heaven. Fourth, we see here that he is an exclusive God. At this point, many of you might say, well, wait a second here, Pastor Scott. This sounds a little far-fetched, a little too good to be true. You mean Jesus just erased all the sins of the world by dying on a Roman cross? That's actually not what I'm saying. That's what the Bible is saying. And I'm saying that I believe what the Bible has stated. But here's where it gets a little bit interesting. If it was your birthday and I set a gift on your lap, but you didn't accept it, in fact, you threw it in the garbage, would you be in possession of that gift? This is the case with this amazing gift of forgiveness and eternal life that God has offered to mankind. You have to accept it. And by the way, there's no alternative gift. There's no door number two. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. This is what makes God the exclusive God. And make no mistake, all religions are like this. At, this purest effort, at their purest essence, every religion believes that it has the way, the truth, and the life. And now it's up to you to decide what you're going to do with this gift. Are you going to choose one of these other religions? Or are you going to accept the one that God has declared in the Bible? And for me, I believe this one in the Bible mainly because it dealt with my issue of sin. It dealt with mankind's issue. And that's where I feel like all the other religions fall far short. But in accepting this gift, you might ask, well, how do I accept it? Jesus told Nicodemus that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. And so what does it mean to believe in Jesus? 
Well, it doesn't mean to just believe that he existed 2,000 years ago, that there was some guy in Israel that was walking around that taught some certain things to his disciples. It means to believe and place your trust in the words that he has spoken. It means to believe that he died for your sins. It means to recognize that you are a sinner and to ask the Father for forgiveness based on the death of Jesus. In conclusion this morning, many of the religious leaders in Jesus' time did not believe in him. In fact, if they would uh, have believed in him, they would not have sought to discredit him or to kill him on this Roman cross. But what about this religious leader? What about Nicodemus, who had seen him at night here? Whatever became of him? Did the conversation that he had with Jesus have an lasting effect on him? Did he believe? We actually know the answer to that question. We see Nicodemus two other times in the New Testament. In John 7, the Sanhedrin is meeting to actually determine what to do about all the upheaval that has been created because of Jesus' ministry. They decide to have him arrested at this point, and here we see Nicodemus speaking up in verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus, who had gone on before him and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you a Galilean too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so they're saying, What, are you throwing your hat in the ring with him too now? Are you a follower? And here it seems that Nicodemus is somewhat tentative. He hasn't really gone all the way. He's kind of on the fence, but he's taking a step toward it. He's trying to defend Jesus. A little bit undecided still. But the next time we see Nicodemus mentioned in the book of John, we see that he has made his stand. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in the linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so what had happened here was Nicodemus was there at the cross. He was watching Jesus died along with the other religious leaders. And something in his heart had switched. He had placed his trust and belief in Jesus. And he actually begins to help the disciples take the body down, buy supplies for the burial, help with the burial. And this was a very controversial thing because it was the Passover. And you couldn't handle a body at that time without becoming unclean and disqualifying yourself from all the different feasts that were going on at that time. Tradition actually tells us that, well, actually a historical document tells us that Nicodemus was kicked out of the Sanhedrin. And he had associated himself with what they considered as a charlatan and a heretic. Tradition also states that he was baptized by John, which is probably the reason that he's only mentioned in John's gospel here. His remains were discovered in a common grave alongside Stephen, who was stoned for being a Christian. And so as you consider this message, where are you at today? Are you like the religious leaders who rejected the claims that Jesus made? Are you like the crowds who were uncertain about what Jesus was? An agnostic, that means you don't understand about God or you're still wondering. Or are you like Nicodemus? Have you been touched by the words that he spoke in John chapter 3? If you have moved into this third group, then it's time to stand up and make a public stand like he did. He risked it all to be a Christian follower. 
And so the question is, are you willing to do the same? And Father God, as we see many coming today as guests to our services, I pray that you would uh, stir their hearts, Lord. Um, Anybody who's listening online today who has not made that decision, I pray for your hand upon them. that They would come into this camp of one who would stand up and say, I believe, and put some skin in the game. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.